0: chapter 7 beginning in verse 1 judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye you hypocrite First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if he asks if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, good give thing give good things to those who ask him? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, uh, we come now and uh, Lord, there is much going on in our world uh, that causes our mind to wonder. Uh, Father, there is much going on in our world uh, that causes uh, just a certain amount of angst and anxiety within us. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we would pray for the people of Afghanistan. Uh, Father, we pray for our service men and women. We pray Uh, For those who have family members who gave their lives or a limb uh, in the the cause of pursuing of that conflict. Father, we pray for our government. We pray for our administration. We pray for those who are now tasked with trying to uh, avert uh, this great humanitarian disaster. Uh, Father, we thank you that when we don't know how to pray, your spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And so, Lord, uh, we are content this morning and we uh, will trust this morning to take these events, to take these happenings, to place them before the foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus and leave them there. Uh, Father, we pray now for these few moments in your word. We pray that as we think about this off-quoted, but also often misunderstood passage, that you will help us think through the relationships that you call us to as your people. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the Sermon on the Mount. We saw in past weeks, before we took the break for the 11 weeks in the Psalms, that the Sermon, is Jesus' manifesto on human flourishing. In other words, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount unpacks for us what it means to be fully human, rightly related to the God who created us. Now as we move into chapter 7, Jesus turns his attention to the various and sundry relationships we have in our lives. How should we relate to one another as the people of God? How should we act when we are confronted with pagans and pretenders? And perhaps most fundamentally, how should the people of God relate to God himself as we bring our prayers, our petitions, our cares, and our concerns before him? And so now, as we move into Matthew chapter 7, we see that in verses 1 to 11, and it's our big idea for this morning, Jesus gives his followers guidance as we navigate our various and sundry relationships. Three points we want to make this morning, then. Uh, The first one is this, Uh, Jesus helps in terms of our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's helping us think through those relationships within the people of God. Now, we need to remember as we read this text and as we try to make sense of what Jesus is saying when he says, judge not lest you be judged, we need to remember his original audience. He's speaking to Jews in the first century. And first century Judaism was very much a case, particularly uh, not just financially but also spiritually, of the haves and the have-nots. There was a spiritual hierarchy that was very much a part and parcel of the religious culture of Jesus' day. And the scribes and the Pharisees were at the very top of that hierarchy. Uh, They were, if you would like to think of it this way, uh, they were the one-percenters. But was that God's plan for his people? Was it God's plan that there is this small uh, sort of elite group of folks who are viewed, uh, not just by themselves, but by others as being the spiritual elite. And was it God's plan that those spiritual elites should be the ones who should walk around letting everyone else know whether or not their thoughts, their actions, their lives were up to snuff? Are they the ones who should be the standard keepers it's interesting isn't it that jesus is speaking in a context in which the scribes and the pharisees are very much the keeper of the standard of what is seen as being spiritually right and proper and yet earlier in the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 5 verse 20 jesus tells his followers that they must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, for without it they will never see the kingdom of God. The words, judge not, lest you be judged, have been quoted and misquoted uh, probably more than any other part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying, that others' opinions and actions are never to be commented on, or that another person's words or actions are simply above reproach because it's genuinely and authentically who they are, and after all, who are you and I to judge them? Error, sin, heresy, all these things must be confronted. The question is, how do we do it? So, if it's not, if Jesus is not saying that others' actions and opinions can never be commented on, they can never be called to task, what is it that Jesus is saying? Well, I love the words of the Anglican J.C. Ryle. Ryle says this and what Jesus is saying is that uh, we must not, as those uh, who would dare to be called God's people, we must not possess a censorious, or fault finding spirit, a censorious, or fault finding spirit. Now, if you're wondering, okay, what is that? What does that even mean? Uh, let me ask you. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter seven. And by the way, we're going to be flipping about quite a bit this uh, this morning. So keep your finger in Matthew seven. But turn over with me to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter eighteen. And we're going to look this morning at verses 9 to 14. The Bible is the best ex- explanation of the Bible. Scripture illustrates and explains Scripture. And so we want to know what it is that Jesus means when he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Later in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, he's going to tell a parable. And this parable illustrates beautifully what Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not, lest you be judged. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and trusted others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner i tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friend, what does it mean to judge not lest you be judged? Well, Jesus in this parable, and then not only in the way he introduces the parable, and then the parable itself and at the very end tells us exactly what he means when he says, judge not lest you be judged. But there's an even more fundamental reason Why Jesus tells us that we are not to have a censorious or fault-finding spirit. You see, when we exercise that kind of judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually trying to take God's place. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, there's a a wonderful, uh, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah. And he tells him this, Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, this is a text that if you, if you know anything about Reformed theology, this is a text we often go to to talk about what we would call total depravity. That human beings are sinful. We're not as sinful as we could always be, but every aspect of our nature has been uh, impacted and, and effect, infected with sin. But let's pay attention to the last line in Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? Thankfully, God gives us the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, friends, the problem with putting ourselves in God's place and judging our brothers and sisters, it's, it's, it's twofold. One, we're taking God's place, and he generally tends to frown on that. The other reason it's a bad idea is we're trying to do something that God's word himself tells us we cannot do. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can Know it. So when you try to judge the motivations, when you try to judge the thoughts, when you try to judge the internal workings of your brother and sister in Christ on the basis of what you see them doing, you're trying to do something that only God can do. I think we've all experienced this in our own lives uh occasionally as a husband i know this you'll find this stunning to you uh, occasionally as a husband i do things that are well stupid and amy will look at me and she will very lovingly say and usually well i'm giving you the benefit of the doubt maybe not so lovingly but the drawl comes out and i get i get i get bullet county big amy and she wants to know why i did that And honestly, and guys, you know where I'm going with this, right? I don't know. Like, I have no... earth. You're right. When you say what I just did, that sounds really stupid. And I have no idea why I just did that. Well, friends, that's true for all of us. It's not just true for husbands. No, the Bible says that the heart is... Uh, Deceitful and desperately wicked, we can't even know it. So, when we go around and we try to judge the motivations and we try to judge the internal workings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, you're trying to take God's place and you're trying to do something you simply cannot do. You can't know your own heart. What in the world makes you think you can know the heart of your brother or sister? In Christ, So don't try to take God's place. And then in verses three and four, he keeps going like that wasn't enough. He keeps going and he tells us, hey, listen, don't be a hypocrite. So as we think about our relationships within the people of God, don't try to take God's place and then don't be a hypocrite. See, not only are we fallible and not only are we finite, we can't know what's going on in people's hearts because I can't even know what's going on in my own heart, but we're also fallen. It's really easy, isn't it, to obsess over other people's faults but then gloss over our own. And there's a word for that. Jesus says that word is hypocrisy. That if You focus on the speck in your brother or sister's eye and you neglect the log that is in your own. You are a hypocrite. Several years ago, um, a a philosophy professor who taught at my uh, my undergrad alma mater uh, wrote a book, 200 pages, on hypocrisy. Exploring, as he put it, all the different categories of hypocrisy. Uh, A.W. Pink, in his Commentary on the Sermon on the Mount lists at least nine different ways in which we are continually being hypocritical to one another. And I think uh, we can sort of condense all those things down to this. Jesus is calling us not to perfection. He's calling us to consistency. He's calling us not to perfection, but rather he's calling us to consistency, or we could think of it this way. Jesus is calling us as his people to consistently be self-critical. So if uh, the first admonition is, don't be so critical, judge not lest you be judged. Now he's saying, hey, listen, uh, don't be so critical with other people, but develop the capacity to be self-critical. Develop the capacity to through the word of God and the leadings and the nudgings and sometimes the elbow over the head of the Holy Spirit to consistently pay attention to your own faults. It was wonderfully modeled for us, I think, in our Old Testament reading this morning. Daniel has read God's word. In the prophet Jeremiah, he's told that it's going to be 70 years that his people are going to be in captivity before they get to go back to the promised land. And Daniel's read that, and he's like, okay, uh, we're ready to go, but we're not ready to go. And so, God, here's the deal. I realize that we need to humble ourselves and that we need to to do the work as God's people of being self-critical. We need to confess all the ways in which we have failed you. Now, what I find to be interesting about his prayer in Daniel chapter 9, is it, it comes uh, particularly in verse 5. I was thinking about that as, as Claire was reading for us. Because in verse 5, he talks about the God is a great and awesome God. He keeps his steadfast love. He's wonderful. He's amazing. And then in verse 5, he says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Now, I find that to be really interesting, given what's gone on in Daniel's life to this point. I find it really interesting that the first thing out of Daniel's mouth after he's done, rightfully so, giving praise and adoration to his God is that Daniel then pivots and says, hey, by the way, we're a dumpster fire. Because here's, I think, what most of us would do. Remember, let's think about Daniel's life. As soon as Daniel gets to Babylon and as soon as he graduates Uh, He gets his master's degree, and right off the bat, the king has a dream, and he says, hey, listen to all the enchanters and all the magicians and all the Chaldeans, if you can't tell me the dream, I'm taking you all out. Huh. Well, Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are part of the crew who now, right, they've just graduated. They're supposed to have uh, not just answers. They're supposed to know the question. That there's no way they could know this and so first instance their life is on the line and then you have shadrach meshach and abednego who king nebuchadnezzar is so self-deluded and so idolatrous that he sets up a golden image of himself and tells everybody they need to bow down and worship it now of course shadrach meshach and abednego don't do it and so they get invited to a barbecue in which they themselves are going to be the briquette. And if that wasn't enough, they finally get Nebuchadnezzar straightened out, and then Nebuchadnezzar dies, and his idiot son Belshazzar takes his place, and Belshazzar forgets all about Daniel, and Daniel gets put in the back room, until the Medes and the Persians show up, and then Daniel gets called for and he's like, hey, uh, could you do your magic and make this work for us? And Daniel chapter 5 has this wonderful bit of sort of biblical God-honoring smack talk from Daniel to a king who just won't listen to him. And then you think, well, there's a new regime in town. It's going to get better, right? I mean, surely the Medes and the Persians are going to be better than the Babylonians. And then we get King Darius, who led astray by his advisor, says, oh yeah, by the way, (laughs) uh, you can only pray to me in my name. Daniel's like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. His enemies know that. They catch him in it. And so Daniel then finds himself at the bottom of the lion's den. See, I would expect in Daniel chapter 9, verse 5, to read something like this. Lord, we are in the midst of a sinful and wicked and ridiculous people. I mean, the Babylonians were bad but the Medes and the Persians might be worse. Do you have any idea how idolatrous and self-deluded and just pagan these people are? But that's not what he prays. He says, Lord, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened. To you belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Daniel is a wonderful example of what it looks like to not be a hypocrite. Jesus then in verse 5 tells us that part of our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ as part of the people of God is that we're going to be an actual real brother and sister. So the point of Jesus saying, hey, don't judge them and don't be a hypocrite is then to just the, the point of this is not to go, OK, so just live and let live. Right. Like you're going to be kind of a jerk. I'm going to be kind of a jerk. You're going to have your mess. I'm going to have my mess and it's OK. Right. Like you're OK. I'm OK. Let's just all get along. No, look back in Daniel chapter seven and verse five. I want us to note how he ends this little section he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is not just to walk around and go, well, you know, uh, that uh, Bob's kind of messed up and that's okay because I'm kind of messed up and we're just going to let it go. No, the point of the body of Christ is that we're actually going to lovingly, in a way that is non-judgmental and in a way that is not hypocritical, We're actually going to point our mess out to one another. We're called to help our brothers and sisters in Christ see their blind spots. We're called to call one another to repentance and faith in Jesus and in his gospel. See, being a real brother or sister, this this is not Jesus telling us to just mind your own business. I think the Apostle Paul uh, probably had this in mind when he wrote to uh, the Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 6, he's reminding them of, of how it is they should deal with folks who have been caught in a transgression. Now, let's note, they've been caught in the transgression. This is not a perceived transgression, right? This is not like, well, you know, Fran laughs a little too loud at parties, which she does. And it's amazing. No, here's what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is... uh, when he is nothing he deceives himself but let each one test his own work and when his then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load see this isn't just mind your own business no it's restore one another but do so with gentleness knowing that we too are prone to the same kind of temptation This is what relationships within the church are supposed to look like. We don't have a spiritual elite. We're not walking around trying to judge one another's motivations as though somehow I can uh, discern the inner workings of your heart. We're consistently walking with Christ in repentance because we know we're not perfect. And we're humbly and gently dealing with the sin in our lives. Not just my life, but our lives as a group. That's what the relationships within the church are supposed to look like. Well, then he goes on to tell us about the relationships to pretenders and pagans. Now, we need to remember as we read, um, as as we come to the next section in this as we read verse 6, that Jesus is a Jewish male living in the first century. So when he speaks of dogs, he doesn't mean the beloved household companion that many of us have. Uh, Lucy the dog at our house had a big cyst removed off her stomach, and so Amy and I celebrated the first night of having no children in our house as she slept on the couch with the dog would have never happened in a jewish household uh, pastor simon from kenya uh, tells people they're like what's the most stunning thing about america he'll say there's three things they put ice in their drinks and the cars and the dogs sleep in the house <laughs> friends the rest of the world just does not view dogs like we do jesus views dogs as a roaming menace Jesus views dogs as sort of a, a public pestilence. They roam about in packs. They're mean. They're angry. If you drop something, they're going to be right there to grab it. Uh, they're, they're not uh, lassie. They're not Tin. They're a menace. Pigs are unclean. Pigs are one of the creatures that God says very clearly in the Old Testament that his people are not to consume. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, when it comes to dogs and when it comes to pigs that which is holy do not throw it to them don't give it to them that which is holy that which is valuable do not offer it to them why? because they will trample it underfoot and they will turn to attack you now uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, so much, uh, so much of the commentators on this text, like we, we try to figure out. Okay, so uh, h- how doggish do I have to be to really be a dog, right? Like, what kind of behavior? Like, what's the standard for saying, oh, that person's acting like a dog; they're acting like a pig. Therefore, I shouldn't throw anything holy, or I shouldn't do, I, I, I shouldn't give them uh, anything of value. Well, I love what J.C. Ryle does with that question. Ryle takes it and he turns it. And he says, you know, I think the better question is for us to pause and go, what are the ways in which I'm acting like that person? What are the ways in which... Uh, a brother or sister in Christ or the ways in which a minister of the gospel or a leadership within my church, they've tried to come to me and they've tried to offer me that which is holy and valuable and I've responded like a dog or a pig. Because we could spend days trying to figure out a chart and say, well, this much dog behavior is okay and then after that you get nothing or this much pig behavior is all right But then after that, you get nothing. And Ryle says, no, instead of doing it that way, how about if we ask ourselves, uh, what's the dog-like or pig-like behavior in my own life? So Jesus says, don't judge. And then he says, no, uh, you need to judge. Uh, Don't be critical. You need to be a little self-critical. But there are times in which we do need to be maybe a little critical. We do need to be able to discern whether or not we are sharing that which is holy and that which is valuable with those who do not value it. Well, finally then, Jesus turns to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And he finds, he locates that relationship within the context of prayer. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And I love the fact, I love how Jesus just sort of presupposes not just the effort that God calls his people to on our part, but he also understands the sovereignty of God. And as we've been going through Don Carson's book on prayer in Sunday school, Uh, Carson points out that one of the questions we often struggle with is, hey, if God is sovereign, then why do I even bother to pray? Or if my prayer is so powerful, why would I trust that God could actually get anything done? And Carson points helpfully and says, hey, look, my responsibility and the power of prayer and God's sovereignty and the the all-encompassing power, the sovereign power of God, Those things are not contradictory. They are a mystery. Lean into the mystery. And so we ask, we seek, we knock. And as we do so, we do uh, confident of the character and the love and the care of our Heavenly Father. I love the question that he asks in verse 11. How much more? We've already established this morning that at times I'm a rotten husband, uh, so it would only serve to follow that I'm probably not necessarily dad of the year. And yet, it is true. If Nathaniel asked for fish, uh, I wouldn't, you know, go to the backyard and dig up a garden snake. Um, if Gabrielle needed bread, I wouldn't give her a rock. And Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more than your heavenly Father will give good things to those who ask him? This morning as we come to the table, we are reminded of exactly how good the gifts our Father gives really are. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, the table calls us to look not just at the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It does call us to do that. But the table also calls us to look at the goodness and the graciousness of God, the Father, who lovingly and willingly sent His Son. He didn't spare Him, but He gave Him up for us. And so Paul says, listen, if God's willing to give in that way, if He's willing to give His own Son for sinners, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all? things the table demonstrates and proclaims god's giving of good gifts to his people and so we ask we seek we knock and we are the people of god not because we think somehow god has to be tricked or that god has to be negotiated with or that we could somehow strong-arm god No, we understand we have a a loving Heavenly Father. We have a Heavenly Father who gives good gifts. We have a Heavenly Father who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. And so we ask, we seek, we knock, because our Father who loves us has told us to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Lord, I I, I want to pause uh, as we think about this this morning. Uh, relationships are hard and they're really messy. And uh, Father, I'm, I'm sure that this morning uh, we can stop and think about relationships in all of our lives in which we're either on the one hand, we've been the one who's judged. Uh, we've tried to judge motivations. We thought somehow we could discern uh, the inner workings of someone's heart. And Father, it's it's wreaked havoc on the relationship. And so, uh, Lord, we want to pause right now and, and think about those and bring those to you. Father, likewise, we felt the sting and the hurt, and uh, at times the rage of the uh, what we would view as the audacity of someone thinking they can discern our motivations, and that they are somehow privy to the workings of our own hearts in ways in which we are not. And Father, that too uh, is that we've been sinned against, and, and we, we need Jesus and the gospel for that as well. And so, Lord, we want to pause and think about those things. Lord, thank you for your good gifts. Chief among them is that you so love the world you gave your only son. And Father... uh, You gave him over to die, to die for sinners. And so as Paul reminds us, if you did not keep back your son, why do we think you would keep any good gift back from us? Might not be the things we want, but Father, we can ask, seek, and knock, understanding that you are a good and faithful father who gives good gifts to his children. Not because you have to, Uh, but because you love us, and that's who you are. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.